Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, who is the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Bioethics, the Raymond F. Shinazi Distinguished Research Chair in Jewish Bioethics, a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Pediatrics, Psychiatry, and Sociology, and the Director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University, and he's considered one of the founders of the field of neuroethics, which examines the ethical implications of neuroscience. Dr. Wolpe, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. In preparing for this conversation, I read an article in the Huffington Post that you submitted. This is an article on the heroism of a man named Faraz Hussein, who chose to die with his friends rather than to leave the scene of a terrorist attack because the terrorists themselves would have let him leave because he, like they, was a Bengali. And he refused to, to, to gain the benefit right. of that kind of association. And you write, our ultimate fear is not that they will, quote-unquote, win and hold us hostage to their ideology, as terrifying a thought as that is, but that their ideology itself will win as it did among large numbers of Germans under the Nazis. And we, too, will descend into barbarity. I, I think that's a compelling way of articulating uh, the deepest fear. And if that's the case, help us articulate what some of the most compelling sources of inspiration or counteraction, ethical tools at our disposal to help us resist the kind of dissent that we fear. See, I think one of the interesting things that we see, and this has become a very controversial issue right now, is when you have that kind of fear, when you fear the conversion rather than the ideology itself, that's when you try to stop other people from speaking. So what we saw on Berkeley campus, Middlebury, uh, yeah, Middlebury in Vermont, right? What we saw were people who have an ideology that I find um, problematic. We will stop them from speaking. And I think deep down underneath that action is an unrecognized fear of being converted. That if they really believed that the ideology didn't have merit, they would be willing to debate it. And so one of the things I'm trying to to say there is you have to approach ideologies different than yours with courage. And I think that we show a lack of courage when we don't, and there there are two non-courageous ways to confront an ideology. One is to be quiet in the face of it, and the other is to try to suppress it at all costs. The courageous way to confront ideologies is to confront them directly and honestly with argument and fact. And that is part of the problem that happens in our own Jewish community around Israel. You know, the enormous amount of bad behavior of Jews talking to other Jews about Israel is that same exact fear, I think. I deeply believe that uh, in open dialogue, and I deeply believe in letting everyone speak, and I believe, I mean, there, there are limits, certainly, people that advocate, you know, open violence, people that advocate acts of terror, things like that. I, I, I think that that steps over a line. But different ideologies have to be allowed the uh, disinfecting quality of sunlight in order for us to really have what I think would be the ultimate victory of the way and uh, of the things we believe are important. It occurs to me there might be a, a more accessible emotional spectrum from which we can draw in order to 
resist the conversion, as you call it, rather than hoping for as much as courage, sometimes I think it would be sufficient to resist if we just relied on confidence, but genuine self-confidence in our own ideologies, which really doesn't rise to the level of courage, but it's something that we often feel when, when we're just deeply, deeply secure about the viability or sometimes the moral rightness of our counter-ideology or ideology. And if you have that, you don't need courage to be willing to let the other person speak. You and I might just have a different view of courage. You know, I look around campuses today, and I say this as, you know, card-carrying liberal, and and um, to me, to get up on on my campus and to articulate a conservative point of view takes courage. And it doesn't matter whether you're secure or not secure because the response you're going to get here very often, if you're a Trump supporter, is going to be extremely hostile. And so what I mean by courage is the willingness to open dialogue with people who may not want to have dialogue with you to kind of um, resist the pressure not to speak. And I think this happens in the in the Jewish context also on both sides of, of the issues around Israel sometimes. You know, it takes a certain courage to join J Street in certain contexts, and it takes some courage to defend APAC in certain contexts, depending what context you're in. So I do think it rises to the level of courage sometimes. And I say that coming from ethics, because one of the things we learn in ethics is that sometimes it takes courage to be the one defending an ethical position in a group, especially if the ethical position that you're defending means that you're going to deny that group or, or suggest denying that group something it really wants. Fair enough. I, I take your point and I'm moved by it. So talking about courage, taking it to the logical extreme, let's talk for a second about the heroism of Faraz Hussein, whom you cite in that article. And as I said before, he had the opportunity of escaping a terrorist attack by virtue of being Bengali, which was the nationality of the attackers. But Hussein chose to stay with his non-Bengali friends and to suffer their fate because he didn't want the fact of his nationality somehow to be an escape hatch. And he ended up dying with them. You say, we cannot explain it in reference to the heroism. We can only be inspired by it and remember it. And again, moving sentiment. and, And on one level, I completely agree. But I wonder, especially because you're a theorist of ethics, is it really the case that we can't explain it? Or is it just that Hussein's courage came out of the equation built in a moral economy rather than a resource economy, and a moral economy is hard to quantify and to, to define or to, to put bounds on? Well, I meant it, I think, a little differently than that. You know, um, one of the Jewish faculty here, David Blumenthal, very well-known scholar of Judaism, wrote a book where he interviewed and, and, and got, tried to understand the non-Jews who saved Jews during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. He came up with an idea of, you know, kind of a paralleling Hannah Arendt's idea of the banality of good. He asked them why they did it, and the answer was none, none of them could really explain it. Their answers were along the order of, I couldn't just let them die, or it was the right thing to do, or that's how I was brought up and I, you know, it was my obligation. Now, those aren't really explanations. To put it another way, there could have been a hundred other young, I mean, he was 20 years old or uh, something like that. I mean, give or take a year. And we could have put a, uh, you know, 
50 other 20-year-olds in that situation, and 49 of them would have walked out the door, and you, no one would blame them. Right. So when I, when I say we can't explain it, what I mean is there is a quality to that kind of courage that isn't amenable to kind of a rational analysis. It has to do with a deeper kind of commitment. It, it's something we hope we can inspire in our children and our students by teaching them correctly and living um, a life that models that way of being, but it, that's never a guarantee. And sometimes it's astonishing who displays courage and who doesn't. And sometimes it's the people who had exactly the opposite modeling as children who show enormous courage. So I, when I say we can't explain it, I think it's really hard sometimes for us to understand why it is that certain people in certain moments show that kind of moral courage and others do not. I certainly agree with you when you read a story like that, uh, that one's, one's first reaction is simply to be amazed, uh, and you captured that. There's something else you captured which is, which is more rational and systematic. When you talk about ethics as a social endeavor, you wrote an article in BigThink.com, and you explained that ethics is something that societies negotiate, and that when the civic and cultural negotiation works, that the ethical standards in question become really reliable norms. And then you give the alternate possibility, which is that when we deviate from the norm, you cite movements like the Tea Party or Occupy Wall Street as correctives, or at least attempts at correctives, to be a guardrail, presumably, for this norm. I want to pick up on the fact that you chose Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street which caught my attention because yeah. one could argue that Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street are exact mirror opposites of one another. And if so, for the, right. sake, for the sake of argument, it, it might follow, and I guess I'm asking if it does follow, that if they're opposites and they have clearly opposite perspectives on what they're trying to correct and where the norm was in the first place, does it even indicate that the norm hadn't been established in the first place and that it was still sort of up for grabs? As you can tell, I very intentionally try when I talk about these kinds of things to not choose a side. You notice I mentioned J Street and APAC. And that's because when you're trying to teach a lesson about what ethics is and how to have an ethical life, as soon as you pick a side, half the audience is not listening to you anymore. And so my point about that was, I'm a sociologist by training. And what we learn in sociology is that's Societies are always engaged in a widespread conversation as a society about what their moral values are going to be. Emile Durkheim, the father of modern sociology, actually defined a society, his definition of society, were groups with a shared moral sense. So there's always a debate in society about where the moral center of the society should go. And there's always people on the left arguing that it should go in one place, and there's always people on the right arguing that it should go in another direction. And what societies do is they take all of those actors, the ones at the extremes and the one in the middle, and they battle it out and society moves forward in one way or another. Sometimes it swings right, like we're doing, have done right now with Trump. Sometimes it swings left. And over time, society moves forward that way. That negotiation is constantly being defined and redefined, and it includes everything from trials where we are constantly defining what are we going to consider murder? Um, are we going to let transgender people use restrooms? These are all moral moments in a society's conversation about itself. A common question I get as an ethicist is, is there one ethic for all times or does ethics change in time and place? 
And my answer to that question is yes. And by that I mean there are one set of ethics for all time. Freedom, solidarity, duty, kindness. I mean, these are all ethical principles that every society believes in throughout all of history. What changes from place to place and time to time is how we weigh these values against each other, what we give more weight to. So, for example, in the West and particularly in the United States, individual autonomy is given more weight than community solidarity. While in Asian countries, community solidarity is given more moral weight than individual autonomy. Now, neither of those are right or wrong. They are simply a different weighting scale of competing ethical needs. And so what you have with Tea Party and Occupy are groups seeing a problem in sort of the ethical profile of a society and suggesting different kinds of solutions. And then the society as a whole listens to those arguments and moves forward in a particular way and you know sort of adhering to the to one side or the other's arguments more and so we see an interesting thing happening now when 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 Trump won the presidency and over the last you know few months you see an almost unprecedented galvanizing of the left unprecedented since probably the 60s in response to that and you have a very strong set of moral claims being made on the left in response to a triumph of the right in the presidential election. So that's the way societies work. They work through argument and counter-argument and move forward over time. The image that came to mind when you spoke about this negotiation yeah. and its dynamism was a pendulum. And I wanted to ask you if the height of the swings of the pendulum corresponds to the entrenchment of the norm it being tested. So if, if the responses are very extreme, does that mean that the norm was either very well entrenched and requires an extreme response, or does it mean it was weak, or is there no correlation? I don't know. I think it depends a lot on the society itself. If you think about societies that have gone to extremes, if you think about fascism and things like that, in a democratic society, when a pendulum swings one way, it can swing back. I think the problem happens under fascism, and this was the, you know, this was the fear in Egypt about the Muslim Brotherhood, who said that they were willing to participate in a democratic process, but were against democracy. The fear there was that if they won, they would dismantle the democratic process and thus make it impossible for the pendulum to swing back in the other direction. It's what you know, Putin does when he tries to eliminate opposition. And so look at our last five, six, seven presidential elections. We went from Reagan Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump. You just see this pendulum swinging back and forth and back and forth. And I think that represents a healthy society. But that's why I think it's dangerous when you have a president, a House, and a Senate, all of them party, and not to mention overwhelming governorships. I think that's actually not, no matter what someone's political perspective is, I don't think that's the way healthy democracies work, by being completely taken over by one side. So the goal of a democracy is not to have ideology get entrenched. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes, and whatever you do, 
do not give us five stars unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I'm going to switch gears now and let everyone know about your TED Talk, which is fascinating. In it, you illustrate really graphically that we're now in a stage of evolution wherein we're able to design life. And you ask, in closing, is that okay? <laughs> do, do we get to do that? Is it, is, it, is it a good thing? Is it something we need to control? Do we get to reduce life to its, its utility to us? I want to convey to you what feels like a tension to me as a layperson in this field, uh, both in the technological realm and in, and in the degree to which you, know, you are an expert, having thought very specifically about ethics and very deeply. I see two things that strike me as really, really in tension, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on it and maybe help us through some of the tension. On the one hand, I do hear that there's a real desire in society to query the choices that you laid out, these you know, very, very high-stakes choices from an ethical perspective, a process of which, you know, you're one of the chief exponents, and I think you're in, in good company uh, amongst, you know, the citizenry at large. At the same time, in direct tension with that, I also get a, a tremendous sense of inevitability that these scientific possibilities are going to march forward one way or other, good actors, bad actors, actors under different regimes of legal controls, etc., no matter whether or not we query them. And that's unsettling, but it also feels kind of real. So am I, am I perceiving the tension accurately? Is, is there something we can do? What, what, what do you make of it? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one, of course, we struggle with all the time. And my feeling about that is this. I think people misunderstand often what the role of the ethicist should be. Steven Pinker, very famous scientist, one of the sort of top public intellectuals in the United States, wrote an article a little while ago, and he wrote it right after a conference which I created here in Atlanta that he spoke at, talking about the ethics of biotechnology. He went back and wrote this article and basically said, bioethicists need to get out of the way and let scientists do their work and stop trying to control what we should or shouldn't do. It's not necessary. We've got our own moral compass and you guys need to just sort of be quiet and get out of the way. And I think he utterly misunderstood, first of all, the role of bioethics and second of all, the power of bioethics as if we can actually stop science from doing anything. But the role is the more important thing. The role of bioethics and the role of ethics is not to say no except in some rare cases. And one of the mistakes that people make about ethics is they think that ethics is about right versus wrong. How we tell the difference between right and wrong. And though ethics is occasionally about that, it's very rare. And that's really usually just sort of elementary school ethics. The vast majority of ethics is how do we balance two right things in conflict? How do we balance competing values? And if you think of ethical dilemmas that adults have, it's never, should I go into this store and put that candy bar in my pocket or steal? I mean, that's a right and wrong issue, and we all know the answer to that. The complex ethical issues that we grapple with are, here are two competing problems. Do we engage in these kinds of scientific experiments that might someday cure a dreaded disease, or do we stop because they might be dangerous? And the example I gave yesterday, when I teach medical students, they're often confronted with questions like, do I do what's in the best interest of this patient, or do I respect his autonomy because he wants me to do something different, even though I, I know it's not going to be good for him if I do that? That's not right versus wrong. That's two competing values, both of which we want and respect, 
but we can't do both of them. And that's what most of ethics is about. And so when you turn to biotechnology, the purpose of ethics, and the question I asked in my TED talk was not, should we stop this? It was, how are we going to move forward manipulating the bodies of animals? We've always manipulated the bodies of animals. Cows don't look anything today like they looked like when we first got our hands on them. We invented dogs out from wolves. I mean, we have manipulated animal bodies from the when we first became domesticated beings ourselves. So the question isn't, let's stop interacting with any animals and using them for our own purposes. I don't think that's going to happen. The question is, how do we maximize the ethics of the activities that we engage in? How do we engage in biotechnology in the most ethical and thoughtful way we can? How do we intersect and interact with our animal partners and, and neighbors in the most thoughtful and ethical way we can. And, and the answer is not going to be perfect. There will be those people who say we must all become vegans and we shouldn't touch animals and we should let them run. I mean, that's one extreme. And then at the other extreme are those who think all animals are here just to serve us and we can manipulate them in any way we want. And the ethical answer is always a compromise of some kind, in my view. We need to try to, to move forward in the most ethically sensitive and conscious manner that we can. Surely one of the ingredients that goes into the ethical balancing act and negotiation and compromise is the awareness of the fact that there are going to be powerful actors in the decision at hand who don't care about asking those questions at all. Absolutely. And there are two things that I say about that. One is that's why we should have regulation around certain things that we feel strongly about. But, you know, the second thing, and th this is something that people have a hard time with, and that is people say to me things like, well, if we don't do it, they're going to do it in China. They're going to do it. And my answer is, that may be true. That does not give us moral license to do something we think is immoral. To say, I'm going to do this because someone else will do it is not something you would ever let your child get away with. If we think something is immoral, we should not do it. And then we should do our utmost to convince them not to do it either. Now, we've already done that with certain things. For example, human reproductive cloning. The West had a strong consensus that it was wrong. And then we tried to convince the rest of the world. And so far, we've done a pretty good job. So yes, it is entirely possible that people will either come to different, honest, honestly different moral conclusions than we can, because there's a range of moral arguments out there, and do something that we have decided isn't morally acceptable. That happens. It happens all the time. But if there are things that we think are absolutely immoral, then it is our responsibility not to do it, and to do our best to, to convince others not to do it. And if they do it, then to have responses and sanctions uh, to the best of our ability. So we just wrote a set of principles for biotechnology that we're trying to get published. And one of them is, you know, if people violate certain kinds of, of standards that we set, we need to ostracize them from the scientific community. So there are those kinds of informal sanctions that we can impose on those who don't adhere to what we think of as the basic and inviolable ethical principles. I want to move on to another theme that comes out in your writing. You have written about Ray Kurzweil's singularity. And I want to ask you to explain to our audience what the singularity is. And then, in particular, explain your counter notion, as it were, of complexity fallout, which I found very captivating. Ray Kurzweil is a, is a really forward and interesting and brilliant thinker. 
He's a futurist and he's a scientist. He's got many, many patents to his name. He's quite brilliant. He's written a number of books, The Age of Spiritual Machines, The Singularity is Coming, and others. One of his ideas is that science is changing so rapidly and that different scientific disciplines are converging so rapidly. That is, the sort of pure disciplines of science, chemistry, biology, those kinds of things don't really exist anymore. Chemistry, physics, biology, and, and other scientific disciplines are now all cross-disciplinary, and there's no such thing as a pure biologist practically anymore. And cognitive neuroscience and these things, they're all converging together and fertilizing each other. And his argument was that if we look at the advance of science, we see that science progresses exponentially rather than arithmetically or linearly. In other words, as science moves forward, it moves forward faster and faster so that advances don't come at a steady state, but advances themselves happen faster and faster. And we can see that if we look through like the history of time between the invention of the phone to the invention of the fax machine versus the computer versus the cell phone. Each one of those are smaller and smaller increments of time. Progress happens faster and faster and faster. And his argument is, if that's true and we follow the curve forward, he projects a time, you know, sometime in the next 30 to 40 years, where science is going to progress so fast that our abilities to manipulate life will be so profound that we will change the nature of life in a way that we can't even predict at this point in history. There'll be a kind of fundamental moment of profound shift in the human species that he calls the singularity that will kind of transport us into another level of way in which we as a species communicate. Our physical bodies will be able to manipulate our physical bodies to the point that we may alter ourselves in ways that now we can't imagine. And it's going to sort of kick us into a quantum leap to another level of, of human existence. My argument is that that misunderstands the way in which science actually progresses. One of the things we heard over and over again in the build-up to the Human Genome Project was, well, once we understand the human genome, we will be able to manipulate life in a way we can't even think of right now. So we decoded the human genome, and then we discovered that the human genome, that what they, well, I mean, we knew this already, but what we realized was that what DNA does is it makes proteins. And now we have the whole map of how the DNA makes proteins, but we didn't have a whole map of all the proteins. So now we started proteomics, where we were trying to understand the protein. And then another group came in with epigenetics, which says, well, you know, the DNA is just a blueprint, but kind of like any blueprint, how the builders come and interpret that blueprint. If you got two builders to build two houses from the same blueprint, you're going to see differences. In the same way, epigenetics is the influence of the mechanisms of translating DNA, which also has its own contribution to the final product. So we need to understand epigenetics. And what we ended up finding was not that the human genome product led in a laser-like fashion to our ability to have this particular set of skills, but rather quite the contrary, it led to more and more complexity. And the singularity theory suggests that we're going to build and build to this moment where everything converges together in this kind of illuminating moment on Sinai, you know, somehow. And my argument is, no, no, that's not the way it's going to work. There's going to be all kinds of things we still don't understand, new kinds of complexity. And yes, we will gain many skills because of the Human Genome Project. Genetic engineering now is much further than it was. 
But this idea of it all converging in a moment of singularity seemed to me to misunderstand the nature of, of complexity in science. Would you agree also that the nature of society, of human society, is perhaps analogously complex and that as science gets applied to, used in, and part of society, we refract the science itself and we distribute its benefits and its costs in uneven ways and, and it becomes a, a complex system of its own? You know, science is a social activity. Society asks questions of science that science then answers and feeds back into society, and it's a feedback loop of back and forth. So that's very true. And the other sort of side of that is you often hear people, so the, the founders of the field of nanotechnology would argue, well, once we develop nanotechnology, we're going to solve poverty and everything else. And there's this technological utopianism that misunderstands the complexity of social life. It misunderstands that there's famine in places at times not because we don't have enough food to feed those people, but because of politics, we can't get the food to the people. And so the idea that technology is going to solve social problems is a very naive idea, but one that you see very powerfully in the transhumanist community. And in popular culture and the news as well. So it's, it's, uh, it's enticing. People in popular culture don't necessarily believe that technology will solve all their problems. They believe you know, other things might. Right. But in this transhumanist community, there's a real technological utopianism. If only we can engineer better and do science better and create better you know, technological tools, biotechnological tools, we can solve all our problems. And misunderstanding the tool for the repair. I'd like to close by asking you one final question. Forgive me if it's either sophomoric or just downright stupid, but are ethics and morals synonyms or not? Technically, if you ask a philosopher who's an ethicist, they will tell you they're not. But the interesting thing about that is when you try to look at the different definitions experts have about this, they're not consistent. Some people say ethics is your system of belief about what's right and wrong, and morals is your personal translation of that system into a set of personal behaviors. That's the definition I tend to use. If you try to make people stick to that in their language, you, certain, you quickly find that the average person doesn't see that distinction as all that meaningful. So I've never been one that was a stickler that much on, on how to use those two words differently. Dr. Wolpe, thank you so much for the conversation. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, it was great talking to you, too. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.